Hello all and welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast about connecting people and communities to science and research so that we can join forces to catalyze sustainable global change. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and in this episode, we are talking about the FIPO Research Group. FIPO stands for Far East Prisoners of War, and it focuses on capturing the history of civilian captives during the Second World War and the impact that this has had on subsequent generations. The group brings together veterans, their families, writers, and academics to create a friendly space to capture stories that we can learn from and apply to research now. I have a wonderful new co-host with me today, Jeff Gill from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, where he has been involved with research and clinical care of former Far East prisoners of war. He has led the medical history inquiries into Far East imprisonment, resulting in two recent books, Captive Memories and Burma Railway Medicine. We also have two great guests with us today, Brian Spittle and James Reynolds. But before we hear from them, let's hear from our co-host. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you here. It would be great if you could start off by explaining why is it important now to share histories of captivity and how does this link to the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine? Thank you very much. And it's a real pleasure to talk about this fascinating and rather unusual topic. So the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine became involved by accident in late 1945 where local Far East POWs were returning from their captivity. And they really had very little in the way of medical debriefing or, or, or so on. And, and shortly after returning home, a number of them started having relapses of malaria, dysentery and so on, which were clearly unusual and couldn't be coped with by general practitioners. So the local schools started seeing them and treating them. And what started off was a very informal, small process, snowballed, over the years, and became more formalized and became a national scheme. And since those days, we've seen over 4,000 Far East POWs for diagnosis, management of continuing physical and psychological problems related to their imprisonment. I, of course, wasn't around in, in 1945, but in the mid-1970s, as a very young, raw junior doctor, I worked clinically at the Liverpool Tropical School prior to working in Africa. And in the beds that I was in charge of, I, I was looking after largely Far East POWs with worm infections, with neurological damage, with psychological disorders. This was totally new to me as a British-trained young doctor. And I became fascinated by this. And after travelling and after further training, I came back to the Liverpool School as a, an academic researcher and teacher and, and continued my interest in these men. And we led a, a large research program defining just how long and how prolonged the effects of malnutrition and tropical disease exposure could be, because this was quite a new lesson for the tropical and military medicine. So we certainly learned a huge amount medically from these men and from their experiences. And I think, and I'm sure we can explore this later, is that also there are the lessons of history as well, and the stories that have evolved and to this day are being told and retold and hopefully informing and educating new generations. It's really quite incredible. And just a very quick question before we meet our guests. Were other people around the world doing something similar or was the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine quite unique in how they were documenting and learning? So I think it's true to say that we did lead the field in researching and in publishing the results of our work defining these long-term conditions 
But after our first publications, we're going back to the early 1980s, but through to the late 1990s, then other areas did become involved because, of course, there were large numbers of ex-Boris POWs in Australia, in the Netherlands, and also USA, Canada as well. So certainly research programs came on board in other countries as well. But I don't think I'm flying the flag too much by saying that I think we did lead the way. That's great. Thank you very much. And speaking of these stories, let's meet our guests, who I think have quite a lot to share. Brian Spittle, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you relate to this work. It's a rather recent story, and it's a very old story, both at the same time. I think one of the first things that I remember was my mother sitting me down at the kitchen table and telling me that my father had been a prisoner of war in the Second World War in Singapore. And I was about the age of five at that time. Uh, then followed a silence, because the other thing she told me was that we weren't supposed to talk about this, and I was never supposed to ask my father anything about it. And so I didn't for about 40 or 50 years. He died in 2004, and it was only a couple of years before he died that he pulled me into his study and said, I've got something to show you. He pulled out a, an article that he'd written for the uh, Bulletin of the Raffles Museum in Singapore on the birds of Singapore. He'd studied the birds at the Changi camp and another camp where he was. And my mother had initially told me that he had managed to survive largely by keeping himself active and studying the birds in the camp. I just had an idea that maybe he was scribbling some things on the back of an envelope, which actually he was. I, I learned later. I didn't realize it was systematic. I, I suppose after he died, that becomes the second part of my curiosity here. I found a large box of materials that he brought back from Singapore, the bird notes and many other notes that he made. Thank you. When you listen to Jeff and the work that's been going on at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, is it really interesting because you have that link there? Yes, doubly. In fact, really, my father should be here because he wasn't a trained doctor. He was a self-trained biologist and entomologist for eight years before Going to Singapore, he had been a lab assistant in the Imperial Institute of Entomology, just outside of Slough in, in England, which was one of the leading entomology research centers in the world. So he was quite well versed in, in biological topics. He then trained as a sanitary inspector right before the war, and so was very much involved in the early issues of sanitation and hygiene as the prisoners of war coalesced around Changi in those early days and worked in the dysentery wing of the Roberts Hospital at Changi. So he was in the Royal Army Medical Corps, a very lowly position, just a private. He was out there doing anti-malarial work and did do that in the few weeks before the fall of Singapore, but then was very much involved with, I, I suppose, like the hygiene and sanitation and medical issues connected with the prisoners as part of his work. He was also sick for a long time. From that point of view, the kind of work that the Liverpool School has done, I think it would be of enormous interest to him. Sadly, he never knew about it while he was alive and came back with pretty serious, what we would now call PTSD issues, and never really got any treatment for that or any recognition of it. So that was one of the things that I wrestled with growing up. I only know a little about Jack Spittle and his work, but a couple of things that you mentioned there. One is that a lot of what he did was all about preventive medicine, about hygiene. And that really rings bells with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Our primary 
called course is the Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. So it's not just about diagnosis and treatment, it's about prevention. Uh, it seems to me that your dad was all about that. And I've read about remarkable things about his fly-proof latrines and, and malarial work and so on. And, and amusing those that they sound, these things save lives. So I think his work was remarkable. Absolutely. And what's coming across here is that systematic mindset of documenting things, no matter what the conditions are. But before we go any further, James, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a bit about your experience and link to the work here, please. So I'm the representative of the next generation, of the second generation down. My late grandfather was a Far East prisoner of war. His name was Eric Cordingly. He was a chaplain and we have some of his writings to help us piece together what he lived through. He died in 1976. And as Brian was saying, it was not something spoken about a lot with my mother's generation. My mother's one of four and my grandfather died when I was two. So it's been a process for our family of putting together those years, done so in the way I think that so many other families have done by finding bags in the attic, by finding documents and by doing our own, not detective work, but compilation work to quietly and gently put stories together, stories that generation did not want to tell themselves, but given that they kept their documents, I think, and I wonder if that was a way of saying, if we don't talk about it, you can look at it when the time is ready. And for us, that time has been over the last decade. So I've worked with my mother, Louise, on editing her father's papers. And the reason I'm speaking to you is because in one of the projects that we did, we put together a very short children's book about one of the stories of my grandfather's little Scotty dog waiting for him every day at the fence post for three and a half years. And eventually my grandfather did come back. And it brings us on to a wider point beyond prisons of war. Every family has stories they pass on. Jeff, in your introduction, you're talking about stories being told and retold. And that's what we really did with, with one of the folk stories we had is put that down for other generations of our own family and perhaps as a spur to, to other families out there, write down your own myths, write down your own legends. I think this is a really important message that passing down those stories is vital so that we have that connection to history, but also we know our own progression, where we came from. I have a question for you, James. Tell me about the moment you and your mother sat together and thought, okay, we're putting this story together. It was a gradual process. We'd done together two previous books. One, we'd found a manuscript left behind by my grandfather about his time in Changi. And we found documents of his time on the Burma Railway, which were, as I'm sure you all know, as horrendous as could be imagined, certainly unimaginable for my own generations. So we'd done that. Those were very much for grown-ups. And subject matter is beyond awful, even though humanity shines through and the title of the first book we decided on was down to bedrock about the fact that when you have nothing left, true humanity shows, which was one of my own grandfather's findings. But then we thought, let's do something else as well. So we'd always been telling the story of the dog who waited for, for my grandfather. I heard about it for years. I said, let's just get it down. It just felt like something that would be fun to do. And it was. 
It sounds like a really good route to talk about something that's really difficult, but to maintain those messages and make sure that the stories are captured and shared it for the next generation as well. I'll hand over to Jeff now to talk a little bit more about how these kind of two narratives link with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and, and research now. It is very interesting, isn't it, that a lot of these myths and stories have completely skipped to generation, that the returning POWs themselves mostly just said nothing. Then a lot of these stories have come to light either very late in their lives or even after their deaths. I can think of lots of examples of sons and grandsons, granddaughters and so on, giving to us at the School of Tropical Medicine all sorts of memorabilia and diaries and, and things which only came to light after the death of their descendants. Was that a sort of a step up a lip? Was that a kind of no one will be interested? What's your take on that? The strange thing for me is I've been very aware that my father, when he made all these notes in 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 captivity, he buried them. Uh, he kept them buried because they were clandestine. You weren't supposed to be keeping a diary or making any notes or, of any sort. So he buried them. But then he came back and he buried them again. Not actually buried them, but he put them in the attic. We We never talked about Singapore for the longest time. I forgot that he was even in Singapore, even though I'd been told that as a young child. I thought he was in Burma until about, oh, I don't know, in my 40s or so. That was the level of disconnect that was going on in the household. He didn't talk about it. He didn't join any sort of the associations that were out there that could have been helpful. And he retreated into his study. Within his study, he was doing work that connected him with people in, in, in some cases, all around the world. So there was an outwardness and an inwardness that, that, that remains a mystery to me. But about this, no. We never talked until right before he died, about two or three years before he died. Brian, the question I wanted to ask you was, do you understand the science? And I'll maybe come back to that question. But on a practical level, Jeff, there was an instruction given to the returning fee posts and I'm just going to read some of it to help us understand the practical reasons for silence. And then we can go into the spiritual reasons for it later. But the practical reasons, they were given an official notice. You are free now, but anything you say in public or to the press is liable to be published through the whole world. If you've not been lucky enough to have survived and had died an unpleasant death, you would not have wished your family and friends to be harrowed by lurid details of your death. In other words, don't talk about it. That was the order even the last order that they were given as they returned firstly to Liverpool and then to the rest of the country. And I can get that. I can understand that. And there are letters, as my mother and I were doing, and that fell out of, of the books. And one was from, I think, the brother of someone who died, who wanted to go and see my grandfather in the late 40s, early 50s to hear about his brother's death. So there was this need to know among those that we don't know about. And it may just have been a different generation following that order. It may have been the weight of time. We're lucky that in my grandfather's case, in 1967-68, he did write down an account and a reflection some 20-odd years later about his thoughts. I think one of the things my mother and I feel on this is we don't have any unanswered questions. All the questions that we had, there were answers to. And that's given us a lot of peace. For those who weren't able to give answers, maybe that silence is also for peace as well. And I hope it is for those families who have questions. Silence can be peace as well. I think that, yeah, those are really good points, James. I'm aware of those orders which were given to returning POWs, don't talk. 
I, I just sometimes wonder, as the years went by, whether those orders would have been forgotten and people would have written and spoken. And some did. There's no question about that. Some did, but many did not. One thing that impressed me with many of the Forest POWs that I saw at the Liverpool School was that they were very self-facing over their experiences, that they'd been through terrible experiences in Singapore, Java, and the Thai Burma Railway, whatever, malnutrition, recurrent malaria, dysentery, and so on, mistreatment. And they just made light of it. They said, oh, I was lucky I got through, so on. And talking of getting through, I wanted to ask you both about survival, because we've inquired historically and medically about what was it that made some people get through and some people didn't. And we can come up with medical answers. Yeah, they were lucky. They were in a good camp. They got better food. There they, they were more treatments and drugs. The doctors were better or it was less remote and so on. And you can medicalize the experience to some extent. But time and time again, many people have talked a lot about this, about, about the actual spirit and the will to survive and coping strategies such as that. I wonder if you might comment on those. On that point, the thought that we've always had as a family is that one of the reasons my grandfather was able to survive was because he had a very important job, that being a chaplain, and these are his own words, he said, when the war was going on, he said the chaplain was always in the way. He was always, people always trying to get him out of the way, but suddenly when they got captured, all of a sudden there was firstly nothing in Changi, and then obviously horror on the railway. His job became really important as a place of solace, and on a practical level, and on burying people and being with them in their last moments, their meticulous records he had to take as part of his job, showing that he was with dozens, if not hundreds of soldiers as they died. And that suddenly become from what was a, a rather non-essential job, he felt, before war, to an absolutely essential job in captivity. Brian, do you think that your father's knowledge of public health and preventive medicine, do you think that might have helped him, his own practices as a POW and helped get him through? Yes, I th I've thought quite a lot about this. I've read your grandfather's book, James, and I, I was very struck by it. It's a wonderful testimony. My own father was, I think, by character almost at this point, a researcher. <laughs> He'd gone through eight, nine years as a lab assistant. He was immersed in research techniques from this. I think he wanted to document what was going on. Yes, some of it was just keeping up time. He was bored and he, he needed to fill time and fill the day. And he did that through writing down everything, I think. But one of the things he wrote again and again were drafts of articles he wanted to publish after the war. He wrote an article on fly swatting, which, I mean, there was a slightly humorous take on the hygiene, if you like. I don't think it was ever published, but he wrote these drafts of these short articles. And I think that what's implicit in that is two things. One is the discipline and the focus and the ability to engage with the world as it is around you. But secondly, it implies a sense of the future. It implies that you're going to publish this, hopefully at some point, as he did with one or two of the pieces. Even though towards the end of his time there, when he was at Cranji on the northwest coast of Singapore, I'm not sure he thought he was ever going to survive at that point. That was a very bleak period. But still, I think those two pieces, the discipline of the research, which he'd learned so well to the Imperial Institute of Entomology, and then I, to me, the sense of the future, 
you mentioned fly swatting there, and uh, that was a very interesting practice and a, a very simple but effective method of dysentery control, particularly worked well on the, the Tyburma Railway, where it became so sophisticated that before men could have their supper, they had to produce 50 dead flies. And laughable though this seems, this, this radically reduced dysentery rate, you cut down the flies, they stop buzzing under the trees, they stop landing on food and so on, less dysentery. It's just such a simple and clever hygiene method. And, and it's interesting that your dad was involved with that. And again, I mentioned before, the fly-proof latrines, again, something very simple, but actually something of huge benefit. And I think that's one of the things that we as a, a school of academic tropical medicine have learned that very simple techniques can actually be enormously effective. See that in simple things like malaria control in children in the tropics, just a bed net. A properly used bed net can be enormously effective in reducing malarial transmission and, and mortality. So I think that is a very important point. I think what also strikes me here is the human resilience that comes out. I was listening to your stories and having a focus and living for others and playing a role. And as we live in a world that's changing all the time right now and the pandemic and the kind of conflict we're seeing around the world, these stories have messages of resilience within them, don't they? James and Brian, have you found that you've learned a lot just from, not just about the stories, but also about the way you can live in, the, in current situations? I think I'm still learning. There are so many pieces that I'm still trying to piece together. I'm not going to be able to do all of it. I've got to a certain point, but it's leading me to more questions as much as answers. Now, I think there's a certain piece that comes from a period of engaging with, in my case, my father and, and what I did not know and, and trying to come to know some of what I did not know. In essence, I don't think I can ever know what he went through. The gap there is just too enormous. In terms of learning about resiliency and his character, of course, I've learned a lot, but I'm left with this paradox, and I don't know what to say about it, but awful though they were, the camps were a place where there was enormous cooperation and I think an absence of hate. My father said there were no quarrels. People got along with each other. There was no time for, for discord. And so that's one piece that I think becomes a puzzle. Is that once was, and I've read one or two POW memoirs, Russell Braven's in particular, Naked Island, as he's leaving Singapore after he's released, there's almost this feeling of loss that he's lost his comrades, he's lost this camaraderie. What happens to them now? Your question, I think, gets to that a little bit. What do we learn from all of that? The other question I have is the other voices. I think one of the limits of these memoirs, and it's, it's inherent in them because they're personal stories, of course, but what voices are we not listening to? What voices have we not heard? I'm finding myself more and more interested in what was the experience of the Chinese? What was the experience of the Malays? What was the experience of Indians? And for that matter, Japanese. Um, those are stories I would like to hear more of and engage myself more with, because I think my father thought that too. He actually was one of those people who did not have any particular malice, feel any particular malice towards the Japanese. He thought everyone was in a pretty rotten boat. Most of the Japanese he met didn't want to be there either. 
that was his sort of view. I think we have some real questions to ask there. And there's so much that can be added with these stories, but they need to be multidimensional, not just one dimensional. I can only do one story. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure I can do that, but there are so many that I would like to engage with. Brian, I, I've thought of others and there's my, in my work as a journalist, it's taken me to people who did know what it's like. I've, I've seen many people caught up in war, many people caught up in disasters over the years. And it struck me that they're the ones who know, not me, and that I can understand it, but I haven't lived it. But it is worth knowing that out there, there are people who have lived it. We talk about the FIPOs and we can also talk about the people who cared for the people I was left behind. There are people I've interviewed who've been split up for years in different parts of conflicts, not knowing if their relatives are okay or not, people who've gone through devastating tragedies of their own. And there are people out there who know. It's not me, but I've met them. What you both say is very interesting. And the strong impression I've got from talking to many hundreds of Boris POWs is that in the vast majority of cases, the experience, although it was, brought out very often the best in people. There was wonderful camaraderie, incredible support, huge gratitude to the padres, the doctors, and so on, and incredibly clever responses to adversity, both physical in terms of camp workshops, producing amazing surgical equipment and distilling alcohol for antisepsis and distilled water and so on, through to amazing support. I think there's so much that I've learned in this small window around I, the importance of documenting and sharing these stories because there is so much to learn and apply in the current context. Unfortunately, we have to come to an end of the episode. Brian, can you just tell us what piece of advice would you give to others wanting to promote historical lessons like this to inform future research? I'm very conscious that I could have reacted very differently to that box of material that I found after my father died. I could have chosen not to open it. Um, I chose to open it, and then that obligates you to do certain things. So I think if, the, if you're faced with a situation where you have access to information that that is important and should be uncovered and shared, then you should do it. And it takes a certain discipline. It takes a certain commitment. And it isn't something that is done quickly. It, it happens over a period of time, I think. That's, the, that's one thing, I think, and it's worth doing. And it brings you into contact with all kinds of people that, that will help you along the way. Uh, the other thing I would just say quickly is try to be open to other points of view and other perspectives. Don't just stay within a received opinion about what you think the situation is, because clearly it's the age-old problem of history. To look at it from any one perspective is not to really do history, but you're involved in something else altogether. Go beyond what you're given. That takes some commitment, and you have to be, you have to be ready to do that. It took me some while to actually read the notes. Some years after I found them, I'd still not really engaged with them. That took some time to get myself in the right place to, to do that. Thank you. I think there's some great pieces of advice there. James, anything to add? If there are family folk tales, write them down, because they're going to be really fun to tell to other generations and to other people. And if there are somewhere plastic bags in an attic, then quietly have a look at them. Wonderful. Jeff, take us home with one final message <laughs> for others. 
I think one of the things I've learned over the years and I've learned more on tonight is that there are many different ways of telling the story and there's no one right way. There, there are many different ways. We haven't seen a Boris POW at the Tropical School for just over 20 years now with the passage of time. But as that phase of clinical medicine and medical research ended, um, I really felt that this was a story that, that should not die. And so we continued with books and historical articles and so on in trying to keep it alive. Just finally, my perhaps final story or message is that perhaps one of the most interesting and successful projects we've done over the last 10 or 15 years is to take the story up to local schools in the Merseyside area. And that has been received very enthusiastically by both teachers and students. And we've had some wonderful experiences where Forest POWs have come along and been interviewed by A-level history students and so on. The take-home message of that is that this was a unique episode in history. It's a story worth telling. It's a story worth learning from. And I think we have receptive generations to to tell it to. Thank you so much. And a children's book is obviously another way to reach out and keep the generational knowledge going. So thank you to our co-hosts and to guests. That's been a wonderful conversation. I've certainly learned a lot. And thank you to our listeners. Please do rate, like, share and subscribe so we can bring you incredible stories of how science connects with people around the world. Thank you for listening and bye for now. <laughs>